0: Someone commented last week about all my yelling. It helped keep them awake, they said. I thought maybe I'd go a little bit lighter today, a little more relaxed. I don't think it'll last long, beloved, but I'm going to try. I'll start off this way. Okay, we are in Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14, we'll be looking at verses 43 through 52. Again, if you're using one of those blue church Bibles, page 851 will bring you right to our text this morning. We're making our way through Mark, section by section, verse by verse. Inside of your bulletins on the left-hand side is an outline designed for you to follow along with the points of the sermon today, the message, and a little short statement about where we're going. We'll look at that in a moment. I titled this message, Loyalty is Everything. Loyalty is Everything. How many of you have either heard that phrase or have maybe even said that phrase? Loyalty is everything. All right, a few of you, a few of you. Let me define loyalty very generally right now, just for the sake of our message this morning, as unswerving devotion, unswerving devotion or allegiance to somebody or something. Swerving devotion or allegiance to somebody or something. Here's some synonyms, different words that mean or imply the same thing as loyalty. Faithfulness, dependability, trustworthiness, trustworthiness. Like if I say to my brother Lewis, Lewis, I've got your back. He knows what that means As I'm loyal to him. I'll stand by him. I'll stand up for him. I'll stand with him through thick or thin. That's what that means. Now, I've heard this phrase a couple of times, and I believe it's very important still to people, although you don't see a lot of it anymore. You don't really see loyalty. It seems to have been one of those forgotten virtues in our culture. I remember when I was promoted to a upper management position, and the vice president brought me in, and And one of the things he wanted to make very clear to me was, Jeremy, loyalty is everything. I wasn't exactly sure what he meant by that. And I think sometimes what that means is you'll lie if necessary, sadly, for the company. Don't you dare turn on me or I will destroy you, that kind of thing. That's kind of the vibe I got while he was saying it. I didn't feel like a good thing to me, but I knew it was important to him and therefore it it must be important to me i've even had a pastor say to me loyalty is everything i'm not again not sure exactly all that he meant by that i can get the idea of devotion or allegiance recently on now i'm going to forget the name of the show but it's donald trump's show this you know that guy he goes you're fired what All right, Celebrity Apprentice, and it doesn't matter if you watch the show or not, that's not important, but the whole idea of this show is celebrities come on and compete to win prizes, and they're put in teams, and then depending on how well they did or if they won, if they lost, they're brought before Donald Trump, and at the end of the show, he always fires one of them. You're fired, you know. And on this particular episode, this recent episode, you guys, any of you remember Lou Ferrigno? Incredible Hulk. A few of you do. Big, strong, muscular man. He was on the show, and and Donald Trump primarily fired him because he said he lacked loyalty. It wasn't so much that he failed on the task, but his main reason for firing him was that he lacked loyalty. He turned on his team in the midst of this uh, interaction back and forth. He turned on his team. Any of you remember Benedict Arnold? Benedict Arnold, maybe some of you do, maybe some of you don't. Let me just refresh your memory for you youngins. And if you don't don't know, then that's just a sad commentary on our school system, and that's what scares me. But he was a military commander in the late 18th century during the American Revolution. He was originally on the colony side, on the rebellion against the great kingdom of Britain fighting for their independence. There's a few things. And by the way, Benjamin Franklin was a great commander. He accomplished many feats in fighting and battling against Britain's forces. He was successful. But someone wrote this about the man. I don't know if it's true, but when you look at his whole life, it probably is. It says, money is this man's God. And to get enough of it, he would sacrifice his country that was written of benjamin franklin i'm sorry i'm saying benjamin franklin <laughs> now i'm the moron benedict arnold you're the whole time you're thinking what are you guys talking you're, and you're looking at me strange and i go she's looking at me strange i know that means something's up but i don't know what it is lord i need you oh i need you benedict arnold beloved Correct boy. Benedict Arnold. I was thinking of Benjamin Franklin because Benjamin Franklin made a, also quoted made a, wrote something about this man. He said about Benedict Arnold, the betrayer. He wrote, Judas sold only one man, Arnold three millions. And what he's referring to is that Benedict Arnold made a deal with Britain for some money to give away some secrets about the military and their location and some very important stuff. And what was going on, beloved, by the way, was he was kind of unhappy about a situation. He had been passed over for some promotions. He was frustrated. And at this point in the war, he felt like the country's future was going nowhere. It was actually probably headed towards defeat, not victory. So he jumped ship. He jumped ship and... Because of that, he was a hated man. They even wrote children's books about him called The Hated Boy, and it was just a story about Benedict Arnold. People would even say, don't be a Benedict Arnold. Don't be a traitor. In fact, even recently, and maybe this you can relate to, you know LeBron James? Some of you who follow basketball, he's a pretty big deal. The owner of the Cleveland Cavaliers back in 2010, Dan Gilbert, he was upset about the manner in which LeBron James departed from his basketball team, from the Cleveland Cavaliers. I don't know if you followed that or heard that, but basically they called him a traitor. And so because of that, Dan Gilbert took all of his posters and he reduced the price to $17.41. So, well, 1741 was the year that Benedict Arnold was born. It was, it was on behalf of him. Pretty serious, huh? So people are still aware of this. People still think about it. Loyalty is important, beloved, but it's not very common anymore as a virtue. You know, we talk about our dogs and we talk about one of the reasons we love our dogs is why? They're loyal, man. You come home, it doesn't matter. They're right there for you. Wagging their tail and climbing up in your lap. You can kick your dog. He comes right back to you. He's there with you through thick and thin. There's your dog. He'll stand by you, loyal. It used to be a day that employees, they said, were loyal. They would stick with a company 10, 20, 30 years, right? Now, two years, three years, changing jobs left and right. One of those reasons is probably because employers are no longer loyal. So employees figured it out. Well, the employer doesn't care. They'll cut me in a second. But there was a day when employers were loyal. They would do whatever it took to keep their people. They saw them as more than just something to be traded on the market, but they saw them as people, human beings, valuable. And so they stuck with them. They would cut costs. They'd do whatever it took to keep their people employed. And because of that, the employees remained loyal. What that meant was they might even have a better offer somewhere else, but they wouldn't go because they were loyal to their employer. Well, those days are long gone, beloved. When we stand before an altar and we or on marriage day, and we confess to the one we love, and we recite those vows, and we say, for better or for worse. What are we saying? We're saying, look, woman, look, man, I'm going to be loyal to you. I'm going to stick by you, no matter what. Thick and thin. Good and bad. Wealth and poverty. I'm there for you. And yet, how many divorce? Loyalty's gone. Well, this morning, I want to address the topic of loyalty from this text. That's where I'm going this morning. Before I do that, I have a long context this time, meaning I want to make sure that, because there might be people that are just here with us for the first time, that you're all caught up in a sense of where we are in Mark. Also, it's probably helpful for you to come every week just to hear the story again. At least I hope it is. So don't check out with me. Let me give you the context before we jump into the text this morning, so it starts to make sense to us. It is early a.m. That's where we are in Mark. It is early a.m. on Friday morning. It is still pitch dark outside, just a little bit, some, a few hours probably past midnight. Hours earlier on Thursday night, Jesus had shared a Passover meal with His 12 disciples, and we looked at that a few weeks ago. At this meal, Jesus not only referred to as sacrificial and substitutionary death, But he also said something very interesting. He said that one of those men reclining with him at the table, one of the twelve, would betray him. That's what he said at the meal. Now it's interesting because no one knew what he was talking about or who he was talking about. They understood betrayal, but they did not know who it was that would betray him with the exception of one, Judas. Judas knew because he was the betrayer to whom Jesus referred but the other 11 did not know. Prior to this night, where they had this dinner on Thursday night, Judas had secretly gone to meet with the religious leaders of Israel. And with very few exceptions, the religious leaders were unified in their hatred and disgust for Jesus. And they flat out wanted him dead. That's how serious their hatred was. Why? Because Jesus continually, publicly and repeatedly exposed their hypocrisy and their corruption, beloved. That's why. He kept calling them out on the carpet. However, at this time, Jesus had gained popularity with the people. They liked him. Generally, they liked him, and that made the religious leaders even more nervous because he kept speaking out against them, and maybe the crowds would then turn against them also. At Judas' traitorous meeting with these religious leaders, he asked for money, just like Benedict Arnold. He asked for money in exchange for delivering Jesus into their hands. You see that in mark fourteen ten through eleven We also see it in matthew twenty six fourteen through sixteen now mark fourteen eleven if you're there, you can just look right back up and it says... And when they heard it, that is the religious leaders, they were glad. They were glad and they promised to give him money. Why were they glad? Well, the main thing preventing these guys from just grabbing and arresting Jesus right on the streets was the fact that at this time of the year, where we are in Mark, there were many, many Jews in Jerusalem because they were there to celebrate the annual feast of the Passover and unleavened bread. As I said before, there was a great number of these Jews that were present who were sympathetic to Jesus. So they weren't necessarily his followers. They weren't necessarily loyal to him. But they favored the guy. I mean, after all, he healed people, he fed people, and he kind of put the religious leaders in their place, and they kind of liked that. So... If these sympathizers at this time were to see Jesus being arrested or taken away, it could have possibly and certainly would have led to a riot if they did that in the public, out in the open. Now, beloved, I've told you this before, but it's important to remember when you're reading the Scripture, some of these things historically, the Roman government had a motto. It was Pax Romano, Roman peace, Latin for Roman peace. Peace at all costs. It was very important to them to maintain the peace in all of the areas that they ruled over because they believed without peace their empire could collapse. Without peace, their empire would not thrive. So they did whatever it took to maintain the peace. And anybody, rebels, or anybody who wanted to break out and have riots and chaos, they treated very badly. They dealt with them quickly and harshly. So, If these religious leaders had done something to cause a riot at this time when the city of Jerusalem was flat out packed wall to wall with visiting Jews for this festival, they certainly would have been held responsible as they figured out and traced it all back, they would have been held responsible for this riot by the Roman authorities. And that would have been very bad for the religious leaders. They could have even lost their place and their authority that was, in a sense, given to them through Rome. So, they wanted to make sure that in whatever way they apprehend Jesus, they do it without causing a riot. Do you understand that? That's important to get, and that helps us understand Judas and how this all played out. So, and you see that in Mark 14, 1, 3 through 2, just look back up at the text, I'll just look at verse 2. For they said, not during the feast. They're talking about capturing Jesus and killing him. Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. So yeah, they wanted Jesus out of their lives, but not at the expense of causing a riot. Beyond that, they never would have dared try to solicit the help of those closest to Jesus to pull off this ambush. Those closest to Jesus being the twelve. Why? Because these men have walked with Jesus for three years. They clearly are loyal to Him. I mean, if we go to them, it doesn't matter what we say or what we offer. They will certainly tell Jesus and our plan will be exposed. So they wouldn't dare do that. But guess what? Here they are trying to figure out what they're going to do and up walks one of the twelve. offering volunteering to betray his Lord. Oh, they were glad. This is perfect. Their prayers have been answered in some sixth sense. So at some point on Thursday night, Jesus dismissed Judas from the group. Okay, that's where we are. We're on Friday evening, so we're on Friday morning, early morning. Sometime the previous night, he dismisses him, but the other 11 disciples don't know why. That's what the text tells us in John 13, 27, 28. They don't know why Jesus dismissed dismissed him. All he says is, what you're going to do, do quickly. That's what he says. What you're going to do, do quickly. And Judas leaves the group. But they don't know what's going on. He goes out. He makes arrangements for Jesus' capture that night. This is on Thursday night. While, guess what? The majority of the crowds now are indoors. Why are they indoors? They're celebrating the Passover. So the crowds are indoors, and as you go later on to the night, the crowds are simply asleep. So the streets are quiet. The streets are empty. It's dark. This is the time. Meanwhile, Jesus and the remaining 11 disciples, they left the city, and they head over to the Garden of Gethsemane, Near the Mount of Olives, down at the lower base of it, just about 15 minutes, about a 15 minute walk east of Jerusalem. This garden, by the way, and we've said this before, was a place known by Judas that Jesus liked to go to. It was a place where they spent time, maybe even spent the night when they weren't in the city during the day. At the garden, after what was probably several hours of intense prayer by Jesus, and we looked at this a couple of weeks ago. And by the way, during this time, his disciples are sleeping. Jesus is praying. He knows what's coming. And we see in Mark 14, 41 through 42, this transition now. This prayer is over. And he says, and he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? That is to his 11 disciples. It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See My betrayer is at hand. So as I said a few weeks ago, you can see they're on this hill. It's dark. They would have been coming with lanterns and torches. There was a huge crowd, a cohort of soldiers, possibly 600 or more soldiers, plus the religious leaders, plus the temple police, a very large crowd with a bunch of lights coming out of Jerusalem, moving and making their way to capture Jesus. He sees them and he points it out to his disciples and he says, the betrayer is here. That sets the context for what we have right now, Mark 14, 43 through 52. So follow along with me. Look into the Word of God. Look into your Bibles and follow as I read, beginning in verse 43. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve. And with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi. And he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body and they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. I'm not going to come back to that end of that little section right there, so I'm just going to tell you right now this weird little thing back at the end here, of 51 and 52, about this young man who was following behind, and literally when they find out he's following, they go to seize him. He runs away probably without anything on. It's just as it says, naked. I'm just going to tell you right now we have no idea who that is. Okay? So there's lots of speculation, but it's all speculation. Some people think it's Mark, and since he wrote the book, this is his signature in a sense. He's like a guy who writes their name on their painting down in the corner. He's, he's just letting you know I was there and, and I this is my writing. We don't know who it is. So just realize it's just telling us the facts about the story. What it does tell us is that no one followed after Jesus. They all left. That's all it emphasizes. So I'm not going to discuss 51 and 52 in length because it's just a report of what happened and anything else would be speculation. I have no idea who it is. So we're going to see three types of loyalty displayed in the betrayal, arrest, and abandonment of Jesus so that we might consider what kind of loyalty we have to God. Those three types of loyalty, I believe, that we'll find in the text are fake loyalty, fragile loyalty, and firm loyalty. Fake loyalty, fragile loyalty, and firm loyalty. Okay, that's where we're going this morning. Let's jump right into the first point. Fake loyalty. Fake loyalty. Look back at the text with me, Mark 14.43. It says, Immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came... What's it say? One of the twelve. One of the twelve. Maybe you just read over that, but the twelve, that title was the name given to a small group of men, just to remind you that Jesus handpicked that he chose to be with him for what turned out to be a three-year ministry. Three years of ministry, the twelve were with Jesus. And Judas is listed as one of the twelve. And we see that in Mark chapter three. But just so you know, he's always listed as last. If you look at all the lists that include all the twelve disciples, and you'll find that in Mark chapter three, or Matthew ten, two through four, or Luke six, twelve through sixteen. As the Gospels record who these twelve were, Judas is always last. You think that's by accident? No. It was not by accident. It was because of who he was and what he did. And beyond that, they always include something descriptive about Judas. So they just don't say Judas, but they say who betrayed him or who became a traitor. That's how they identify this disciple. Beloved, loyalty is everything. And the Scriptures, as they even record the list of disciples, make that clear. This stood out in their minds as something tragic, barbaric, horrific, that one of the twelve would betray the Lord. Now, this is a side note for you guys. This is Judas Iscariot. Judas Iscariot, as he is defined in other places, and that's really describing the place where he is from. It is not to be confused with Judas, the son of James, Judas, the son of James. And I say that to you because in Luke 6, 12 through 16 and in Acts 1, 13 through 14, we see another disciple described as Judas, the son of James. So they make the distinction. So, you know, this is not Judas Iscariot, but this is one that is the son of James. Don't confuse the two. Sometimes people get confused because Judas, the son of James, is referred to as Thaddeus in matthew ten three and mark three eighteen it 's the same guy, okay, so some people who don 't know anything about the Bible or they 'll look at this they 'll compare the list and they 'll go look there 's a discrepancy here there 's a contradiction there 's no contradiction. Thaddeus is Judas, the son of James it 's the same guy, so the list aligned perfectly. It was a common practice for people to have multiple names in Ancient times, aliases. So sometimes they would have, an, they would be known by their name that they were given by the Greeks, a Gentile name or something, by the, or a Greek name given to a Jew. They would be known by their Jewish name. They would be known by another name that describes their character. So sometimes they could be known by multiple names. If you want to check that out, Acts one twenty-three. Write it down. Look at it on your own. You'll see one guy being referred to by multiple names. So that's a side note. Let's go back. In Mark, we are reminded again here in this text that Judas, the Judas that is in the process of betraying Jesus right here, is one of the twelve. This reference to one of the twelve, as one writer says, reminds readers of the uncomfortable fact that Jesus' betrayal and arrest arise from among his trusted followers. That's the emphasis here. It's supposed to be an exclamation point. Beloved, Judas, one of the twelve. That's the point. The one who has betrayed Jesus is not an outsider, as someone might expect, not a stranger. To Jesus, Not an enemy outwardly to Jesus, but literally one of the twelve. One of the selected twelve who walked with Jesus, lived with Jesus, spent quality time with Jesus, learned from Jesus, was taken care of by Jesus. Was as close to Jesus as anyone could have been. And he gave him up to those who desired to kill him. For what? In exchange for some silver. See, I said I was going to be quiet. That just doesn't last, baby. It just doesn't work for me, you know? The Gospel of John, beloved, lets us in on an important detail that is very revealing about Judas' character. Maybe you've heard it before. It's worthy looking at it again. We have here a story. Jesus is having dinner with His disciples, with Mary, who is the sister of Lazarus. Remember, the one that Jesus raised from the dead. And we looked at this story. Mary comes in. She takes a very expensive bottle of perfume, valued at fifteen to twenty thousand dollars in our day's dollar, and she busts it open and pours it on Jesus. I did a message on that called Reckless Devotion. I would encourage you to listen to it if you've never heard it. John tells us, his gospel tells us that Judas, because we know all the disciples got in an uproar about it, but Judas was the one who started the conversation. He was the first one to protest. Whoa! What is this woman doing? Let's look at the text. John 12, 4-6. It'll pop up here, or you can... Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, flip two books to your right. You'll be right there. John chapter 12. Here's what the text says. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples... And John reminds you, who was about to betray him, said... Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? A year's wages, basically, for the common laborer. So that was the value of this perfume. Verse 6. Now John adds something here. He lets us in on something. He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Ah, So apparently, Judas was the group's treasurer in the sense that he held on to the money that they had as they moved from place to place during Jesus' ministry. Beloved, Judas wasn't devoted to Jesus. He was devoted to himself. He was devoted to himself. And yet none of the other disciples suspected any disloyalty on Judas's part. Think about it with me. Would you put the guy that you have suspicions about in charge of the money? No! We're always thinking, okay, who's going to take care of the money? It has to be the most trusted, the most loyal, the most faithful person. If you have any doubt, don't put them in charge of the money. That tells you right there, This guy, as far as they were concerned, was loyal to the bone. That's what they thought. That's why he had the money bag, which was a perfect situation for him, since he was greedy and delighted in stealing from it. When Jesus said that one of them would betray him, beloved, none of them looked at Judas. You know what I'm saying? They're not looking around going, eh, it could be him. You know, we've had our doubts for a long time. No, none of them knew. None of them knew, because he appeared loyal. But you know what? Appearances are not always accurate, are they? They are not always accurate. Mark 14, look back at the text with me. Verse 44, go back to Mark 44. Now the betrayer, and this really, this final interaction with Judas and Jesus, because this is it, this is the last time that they will have a relationship in any way, it is a perfect picture of how fake, how hypocritical, his loyalty was. It says the betrayer had given them a sign saying, that is Judas, giving a sign to the religious leaders and those that were there to take Jesus away. The one I will kiss is the man. Remember, it's dark. okay? And they didn't have street lights. It's pitch dark. They've got some torches and stuff like that. There's going to be certainly several people there. How are they going to know for sure this is Jesus? Judas says, don't worry. I will identify him and I will identify him. With a kiss. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi! And he kissed him. Beloved, you can't see it here in the English language, but in the original language, the word kiss, that verb, it implies a fervent kiss. A passionate kiss reserved to show the deepest affection. One writer says this, A kiss on the cheek or hand we don't know it could have been either, was a common gesture of affection and reverence given to a rabbi by his disciples. But Judas used it as a token of betrayal. And Luke's Gospel tells us this about this encounter. Here's Judas, rabbi! Right? Rabbi! Then he kisses them, but Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man? With a kiss. Of all the ways, Judas, that you could have revealed my identity to the betrayers that are here to take me away. A kiss, Judas? Really? A kiss? The kiss was a sign of affection and devotion, but in this case it was a horrific act of hypocrisy. One dictionary in describing Judas and his character, it says this, Bible Dictionary, Judas was never really Christ's man. He fell from apostleship, but never, so far as we can tell, had a genuine relationship to the Lord Jesus. Now, beloved, before we move to the next text, and we need to quickly, there are many people hanging around the church not Summit Bible Church alone, but the church at large, all over the world, there are many people hanging around the church who, you know what? They might even appear as loyal followers of Jesus. They've got everyone fooled. They might even put them in charge of the money bag. It's happened. But they don't actually have a genuine relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Consequently, Their loyalty really remains to themselves. They're not loyal to the Lord. They will be loyal to themselves. And time will prove that to be the case. And so even in this group, certainly, there must be some here who have a fake loyalty. Just by statistics alone. Beloved, I would say for your sake. For God's sake for the church's sake, for this local body's sake, I would pray, I would beg, I would plead that you would repent. Give up the fake loyalty. Because in the end, you may fool us. But you will never fool God. Judas never fooled Judas. Judas never fooled Jesus. Judas fooled Jesus. Judas never fooled Jesus. He never. He knew the whole time. You may fool others, those even closest to you and your family. You may go through all the motions of loyalty, but if you do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ, it's for naught. It's nothing. It's vain. It's empty. And then what we have in the church is a bunch of people running around, pretending to be loyal, but not having a relationship with Jesus Christ. No wonder the church has such a hard time getting anything done. So for the sake of the church, for the sake of your soul, repent. Turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. Repent of your hypocrisy. Return to the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, two, beloved. Fragile loyalty. Fragile loyalty. Fake loyalty first in Judas. Fragile loyalty. Fragile means again... Just for the sake of definition, easily broken or damaged. Fragile, right? Some of our boxes that we have delivered are marked fragile. It means don't throw them around. Stuff inside can break. What am I referring to? I'm referring to the loyalty of the eleven. The loyalty of the eleven. The other disciples, not Judas. Look, Look back at the text and just look at the last verse here. Mark 14, 50. Here it is. When it's all said and done, and they all left him. The disciples all left Jesus and fled. They left him there. Before they fled, though, we see that one of the disciples, he put up a fight. Okay? That's why I say their loyalty is fragile. These men loved the Lord Jesus Christ. They were not like Judas. They were not faking it. They loved him. But it was fragile. Look back at the text. Mark 14, 46 It says, and they laid hands on him. That is those, the crowd that was gathered there, the military, the the temple police, they laid hands on Jesus. They seized him after seeing Judas make this kiss. They knew who who it was. And then it says, but one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Now Mark doesn't tell us this, but John's Gospel, as I've said before to you, informs us that this was Peter. This was Peter. He drew his sword. He struck the man's ear. There is no doubt that he was going for his throat. You don't, you don't, you don't pull out a sword on someone to, to, you know, pierce their ear. You don't do that. You pull out a sword to kill them, to cut them. And most likely the man ducked and had his ear cut off. But you know what? Jesus did not respond to Peter's heroes, heroism, hero, mm, heroism. Wow, some words I should just not put into my sermon. Heroism. Like the other disciples probably thought he would. Okay, look, I'll just you can follow up on the screen for sake of time. Luke 22:51. So this happens. Peter pulls out his sword, woof, goes to cut this servant of the high priest, slits off his ear, and you think Jesus says, "Get him, boys!" <laughs> and no, he said, "No more of this." In Luke 22:51, that's how he responds to this. No more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Matthew 26:52 through 53 same story different gospel a little more detail then Jesus said to him that is Peter put your sword back into its place for all who take the sword will perish by the sword its capital punishment do you think that i cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels a legion was 6000 men So 12 legions would be 72,000 angels. Now, if you know anything about angels, you know one angel can do a whole lot of damage. Jesus is saying, really, guys? Your sword and stuff? (laughs) I don't need that. After it became clear from this interaction that Jesus was not going to fight, He was not going to try to escape, This hostile crowd that was there to arrest Him, but actually He was going to willingly surrender? (laughs) When that became clear, the eleven fled and they abandoned Him. Leaving Jesus all by Himself, beloved, all alone to face His suffering. All alone. Their loyalty had temporarily been shattered. For it was not strong enough to stand by Jesus in view of the misery that their loyalty to Jesus might bring them. It wasn't strong enough. They saw where this was going. But beloved, these were the same men who just hours before this event, on Thursday night, pledged their allegiance to Jesus saying, we will even die with you. We'll die with you, Jesus, if we have to. Let me remind you of the text, Mark 14, 27-31. through 31. Jesus said to them, you guys are all going to fall away. I'm just telling you right now, you're all going to leave me. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Jesus was the shepherd, they were his sheep, and when that shepherd is struck, They won't know what to do with themselves. They'll run away. And then he says, but listen, guys, listen, after I am raised up, I'm going to go before you to Galilee. Peter just stops him. Nope. Even though they all fall away, and we talked about this, even though they all fall away, I will not, Jesus. And Jesus said to him, Peter, I've got news for you. Truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, twice you will deny me three times. And Peter comes back and says emphatically, forcefully, continually, if I must die with you, Jesus, if I must die, I will not deny you. And immediately the other ten that are there at this moment, they jump in and say, yep, us too. We will not leave you. We will die if we have to. Well, beloved, these men were overly confident, overly confident in their human ability and power to remain loyal To Jesus Christ. See, it is easy to declare and maintain your allegiance when it costs you little. I think that's partly what's wrong with the church today in the United States of America. It's easy to say, I'm a follower of Jesus. Because what does it cost you really? Huh? A couple hours on Sunday? But in other parts of our world, beloved, when someone says that, they risk death. They risk imprisonment. They risk beatings. They risk being put out of their homes, of their city. So, it is quite another thing to remain loyal to someone or something when doing so necessarily involves suffering or sacrifice on your part, on my part, to one degree or another. Wouldn't you agree? Quite another thing. Now, this is the cool part. Let's fast forward in time, okay? We're here on Friday early in the morning. Let's go fast forward a little bit after the abandonment by the disciples, after they've left and fled, after Jesus' death, crucifixion and resurrection and ascension, after the Holy Spirit has come as Jesus promised He would and descends upon the disciples and fills them. What impact did that have on those disciples? That is, the Holy Spirit filling them. What impact did it have on their devotion, on their faithfulness, on their loyalty... To Jesus, beloved, a significant one, a huge one. Let's look at it. It's in Acts chapter 5, verse 27. Let me tell you a little bit about what's going on. We're coming into this story where we're told that the Jewish religious leaders, the same ones that hated Christ and now hate his disciples, have imprisoned those disciples. They've locked them up in jail. Why? Because they were speaking about Jesus. But guess what? During the night, an angel comes. He opens the doors. He lets them out. Now they have escaped. And the next day, they're back telling people about Jesus again. So they go right back to what they were doing before they were arrested. And the leaders are frustrated. So they say, go get them them again. So they get them, they gather them all back together, and that's where we pick up in the story in verse 27. And when they had brought them, They set them before the council, this Jewish religious council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in his name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Because they were saying the religious leaders had a great deal of responsibility in bringing about his death. But Peter and the apostles answered. Remember, these are the same men that fled But how do they answer now? We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging Him on a tree. God exalted Him at His right hand as leader and Savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. We've seen them. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey Him. Them. He'd given the Holy Spirit to them. And when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. So then the Scripture tells us that instead of killing them, they had a debate among themselves, and they decided at this point that they would just beat them. They would beat them, and they would command them to keep their mouths closed about Jesus for now on. So let's pick it up in Acts 5, verse 40. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them. And they charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and then let them go. Then they left the presence of the council. Beloved, how would you leave? You know, just recently beaten and put down and shamed and all of these things. Here's these disciples. They left the presence of the council with their heads down. No, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. That is the name of Jesus Christ. And every day in the temple and from house to house, so the temple was the place where the Jews gathered together. They're going there. They're going from place to place, house to house. Every day they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Wow. Didn't they just tell them, you better keep your mouth closed. We must obey God rather than men. Where did this come from? Beloved, the loyalty of these men to Jesus Christ could no longer now at this point be characterized as fragile. Nope. It was rock solid, unbreakable, fortified. Why? Because they had been empowered by the Holy Spirit that Jesus sent to them. That's why. That's exactly what He promised in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. He said, listen, guys. You may be scared, but you're going to receive power. Power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and in Samaria and to the end of the earth. You're going to get power from the Holy Spirit to stand strong and courageous for me. You will be firm in your loyalty to me because you will witness for me and about me. Even in the midst of suffering and imprisonment and the possibility of death, you will not back down because of the Holy Spirit. So, beloved, I said all that to say this. Being loyal to Jesus is not easy. It is not easy. We shouldn't even think it's easy. In fact, the Scriptures tell us it won't be easy. In fact, I would say it's impossible to really be loyal to Jesus apart from the power of the Holy Spirit. The Scripture says this, Jesus says this, listen to His disciples in John 15:18 through 20 if the world hates you, okay, if they hate you, don't be shocked. Know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Beloved, here's here's the point for us. We will never live like we are supposed to without the power of the Holy Spirit. And that just goes back to my first point, just to remind you about that. Because we have people in the church who are really faking their loyalty to God, they don't have the Holy Spirit. That's problem one. So there is no way for them to maintain the kind of loyalty they need to, to stand up for Jesus even in the midst of difficulties and the threat of whatever that would bring upon them, suffering to some degree or pain. They're not going to do that. They don't have the Spirit. But then there's the rest of us, Christians, beloved, those who have the Spirit of God because they've put their faith in Jesus Christ. And what we do too often is we continue to rely upon our own strength to try to live for Christ, just like the disciples did. Confidence in our ability to be and stay loyal to Christ, beloved, it's just misplaced confidence. You won't make it. You are going to need to rely on the Spirit of God that lives inside of you. And if you do that, not only will you make it, But you will be loyal against anyone and everyone that comes against you. You will remain faithful to Jesus Christ. I put here, beloved, our loyalty to Jesus Christ will be fragile and easily damaged if we do not rely on the power of the Holy Spirit to be strong and courageous. Listen, here's what I want to tell you. I have heard people say to me when they're thinking about getting ready to make a profession of faith in Jesus Christ, to put their trust in Him, this is what they'll say. You know, Jeremy, I'm just not ready. I'm not ready because I don't feel like I can maintain that commitment to Jesus Christ. You better believe you can't maintain that commitment to Jesus Christ. That's why you have to give yourself to Him. Because when you give yourself to Him, He'll give you His Spirit. And then and only then by the power of that Holy Spirit will you be able to maintain your commitment to Jesus Christ. You see? That's not a reason to not place your faith in Jesus Christ. You want to stay committed to Jesus Christ, baby? Do it now! Place your faith in Him and He'll give you the power and the ability to do it through His Spirit. And that's the only way you or I will ever do it. Beloved, we need to depend on the Holy Spirit that God has given us, to stand strong, to stand firm. Not worry about what we might do or what would happen in these circumstances, but to trust in the power of God and His grace and His Spirit to make us stand strong. Firm loyalty is the final one. Firm, we're going to go fast. Unyielding, fixed securely, solid. I like to define these things firm. That's what I mean by that. Unyielding, unbending, fixed. In contrast with Judas, Jesus' loyalty was authentic. In contrast to his disciples, Jesus' loyalty was unbreakable. Loyalty to who, you ask? Loyalty to God, His Father. Back at the text with me, Mark 14:48, 49. It said, "Jesus said to them, to these guys that are coming against him, Have you come out against, come out as against a robber? Really?" With swords and clubs to capture me, day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, but you did not, you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. Jesus here points out the ridiculous way in which they were treating him, as if he were some armed, dangerous criminal. And if he was so dangerous, Jesus says, if if I'm really that bad, you got to come out against me like this. Why didn't you get me before when you had all the opportunity when I was at the temple in the public teaching? The most public place in Jerusalem. I was there. You were there. Why didn't you take me then? And all Jesus is really doing is he's he's exposing the illegitimate nature of what is taking place and the cowardice of those men. That they'd have to do it at night that they'd have to do it in this way because they were afraid of the crowds. Nonetheless, nonetheless, as unjustified as this entire fiasco was, Jesus willingly, beloved, handed Himself over to these lunatics. He could have called in air support from God His Father. Twelve legions of angels. But He didn't. For that matter... We know that He had previously exercised power over creation, commanding the wind and the waves. He could have called down a tornado upon these people to take them away. But He didn't. He could have handled these guys, beloved. The numbers that they had and the weapons they had were no match for the Lord of creation. No match. But He didn't. Why didn't he, though? That God's word might be fulfilled. That's why. That God's great plan for this world would be accomplished. As he said, but let the Scriptures be fulfilled. You guys are ridiculous! Nonetheless, let the Scriptures be fulfilled. How would they be fulfilled? They would be fulfilled through the obedience of His loyal Son, God's loyal Son, Jesus Christ, who came, beloved, to do His Father's will. And this is important. No matter the suffering, no matter the sacrifice, no matter how much the cost, His loyalty was unyielding, even unto death, even unto a cruel, miserable death upon a cross where Jesus courageously absorbed the wrath of God on behalf of sinners. John 18.11, we looked at this a couple of weeks ago. Jesus said to Peter, Peter, put your sword in its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? And we won't get into that now, but we looked at that cup in some detail in a message called The Glory of the Garden of Gethsemane. We know in John, in the same book, in the same Gospel earlier, John 4.34, Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish His work. My food. What sustains me, Jesus is saying, what satisfies me is to honor my Father in all things and endure or suffer whatever is necessary in order to do His work, to do His will. Beloved, no one who examines Jesus' life could ever honestly question his absolute allegiance, his unyielding faithfulness, his fervent devotion, his firm loyalty to God his Father. No one could question that. Okay, so here's here's for us and we'll close with this. Maybe you're thinking right now okay yeah but that was Jesus, Jeremy. just to remind you that was Jesus. I'd like, I'd like to think more of myself like the disciples, you know, with the fragile loyalty. But, and of course, we know Jesus was perfect, right? And we know for certain that we are not. We're all in agreement there. But it is important at this point to remind all of us of God's purpose in saving us. And it is recorded in Romans 8.29. You want to know why God saved you? Just to keep you from hell? Sadly, that's what a lot of people think. They think God's purpose in sending His Son and brutally crucifying Him on a cross was just to save you from hell. Well, certainly that is part of it. But that is not all of it. Romans 8.29, For those whom He that is God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. I like this other translation. Maybe it will be a little more clear for you can pop that up. Here it is in this other translation. God planned that those He had chosen would become like His Son. Now see? That puts a whole new spin on Jesus' firm loyalty. Because now it does apply to us. And beloved, it is only possible to live that way, as I've already said, because of the Holy Spirit, and as we know, the Holy Spirit is the second person of the triune God. So guess what? If the Holy Spirit resides in you, guess who else resides in you? Christ! That's exactly what is said in Colossians 1.27. Christ lives in us. The loyal one. In us. Dwelling in us. And this is why Paul says in Galatians 2.20, these words. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, in this body, in this world, you want to know how I live that life? I live it by faith in the Son of God who loved me. He never gets over this. Who loved me and gave Himself for me. One writer says this. It was not in his own strength. Remember Paul. Remember how awesome Paul was, right? Paul wasn't awesome. Christ is awesome. And he lived out his life through Paul. He says it was not in his own strength that Paul was able to live the Christian life. The living Christ himself took up his abode, residence in Paul's heart. Yet Christ does not operate automatically in a believer's life. Beloved, it's not like a robot. Wouldn't that be great? I wish the moment I got saved, booyah, everything's taken care of. I'm living righteously, courageously, loyally. Yeah, no, it's not. Every single one of you know that's not true. I wish it was. But Paul says here, you got to have faith you got to have faith. It's, an, it's a matter of faith. So he says, yet Christ does not operate automatically in a believer's life. It is a matter of living the new life by faith. In what? In yourself? No. In the Son of God who abides in you. It is then faith and not works. Now hear this. It is then faith and not works or even legal obedience that releases divine power to live the Christian life. It is faith in Him who resides inside me and His ability, not my own. Let me add this, and I know I'm over. Loyalty can be a vice or a virtue. It can be a vice or a virtue. What do I mean by that? It can be bad or it can be good. It can actually be a sin or it can be something that we would call righteous. And here's what I mean by that loyalty is only a virtue, I found this quote, I really liked it, loyalty is only a virtue to the extent that the object of loyalty is good. See, I like that. Because, I mean, some man comes up to me and says, I want you to be loyal to me. I want your absolute devotion and obedience. I want your allegiance, baby. Yeah, but that's what the mob does. That's what they do. They demand loyalty. So to be loyal in that case is sin. But in this case, beloved, we're talking about loyalty to God, the perfect, holy one, the one that demands and deserves our absolute loyalty. And so it is loyalty to God then. That is everything. Loyalty to God is everything. And that loyalty is only possible through faith in the Son of God and the Holy Spirit that lives in us as God's people. Ask yourself this question this morning. What type of loyalty do you have to God? Are you faking it? Is it fragile because you continue to put your faith and your confidence in your ability to stand firm for the Lord? Or is it firm... Have you seen that? Because you're relying on Him who abides in you to stand for the Lord, no matter what the cost. Let's pray. Beloved God, I thank You for this morning. I thank You for Your Word Father, we indeed need You every hour, every moment, every second of every day. And the second we forget that, we collapse. But on the flip side of that, Father, when we draw upon the strength of the One who resides inside of us because we have called upon Him in faith, when we draw on that strength, we can stand. And we should We should be unyielding in our loyalty to You. Firm as a rock. Not backing down in this dark and lost world, but standing strong. And so, Father, we have multiple, multiple opportunities to be witnesses to Jesus Christ. And yet we fail. Father, may we have faith in Him. Who resides in us. May the life that we now live. Be lived by faith in the son of God. Who loved us. And gave himself for us. That we might now. Live for him. And no longer for ourselves. Father help us. Because. That's the only way. This little local body. Is going to make any. Eternal significant impact. Worth talking about. For you. It's the only way. Every single one of us are going to have to be born again, bought by the precious blood of Christ, trusting in Him, the forgiveness that is found in Him and His righteousness, and relying upon the power of the Spirit that He has given us in order to live for you in a way that would be bold and courageous and even would stand up against suffering and sacrifice and do it anyway. That's the only way. And then people will know that the only way anything like that could happen was the power of Jesus Christ. And they'll glorify Him. And Father, that's what we desire. Help us, Father, to get our minds around this and to give ourselves to it fully and completely for Your glory alone, that Your fame would go out across this land. In Jesus' name, amen.